the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Apostolic succession paved the way to preserve the New Testament text. Welcome to another episode of Facts. We are about to launch the official, really the version that I'm going for is the 12 apostles, or the theme is the 12 apostles, their life, their ministry, their martyrdoms, or their tortures in some cases. And what did they do? Uh, we see in Acts, some of them, particularly Paul and Peter, but even then we don't see the full story of Peter. We see more of Paul. And then we even see guys like James, who ends up being killed in the first of the 12, which we'll get to him as well. And then we see this other guy being added to the apostles, but we don't ever see him mentioned really ever again. And that's Matthias. So what we want to do in this series is take each of the apostles, including Matthias. We're going to even cover Judas Iscariot. We're even going to cover Paul. So we're really going to have more than 12, but we're going to talk about the group known as the 12, as 1 Corinthians 15 refers to them, the 12, it's the group. And we already did kind of an introduction to why there were 12 last week. And if you missed that, please go back and listen to it. And uh, it'll really help build some of the things we're going to talk about today. But particularly, I want to focus on the life and the ministry and the death of the apostle Andrew. Now, there may be somebody in the audience that says, wait a minute, hold on, Stephen. I mean, out of all the apostles, you're going to start with Andrew. I mean, I can understand Peter, James, or John here, or even the most popular of the writings of the apostles that we have, and the most of the writings that we have are from Paul. So why Andrew? We don't have a letter from him. We don't have hardly any statements about him. Why him? Well, Here's the biggest reason. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church rightly assesses Andrew as what's called the first apostle, or they call him the first called. Protokletos, or protokletos is the word here. It is first called. And he was. Uh, if we need to be reminded in John's gospel, we see a picture of, that precedes the introduction of Peter. When we come to Mark's gospel, we see Peter on the scene with Andrew, his brother, and they're fishing. We see that Peter is the primary focus of the synoptic accounts. But then we come to John and we find out actually that John the Baptist had two disciples, one anonymous, one by name. The anonymous we find later to be the beloved disciple. Uh, the other is Andrew. And that they followed John the Baptist, and it was them who heard declared, this is the Lamb of God, from John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus. And there, they were invited to follow Jesus, and they asked Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus used the words in John 1, come and see. And he invited them to follow him, and they spent time with him. And once there was actually a moment where Andrew came to understand who this guy was that John the Baptist pointed to. They were no longer John the Baptist's disciples, but became disciples of Jesus. And he ran back home, told Peter, we found him. We found the Messiah. And in that introduction to Peter finding the Messiah, we find the most extraordinary thing. Peter rushes without ever, ever commenting. John doesn't even give us any statement from Peter, only Jesus talking to Peter. But it was Protokletos, the first called disciple, Andrew, that actually introduced Jesus and Peter to each other. And so that's why we're starting with Andrew. If you wanted a real biblical answer, <laughs> that's why we're starting with Andrew. So let's talk about Andrew for a minute as well. Actually, the more I studied him, the more I like him. Um, and there may be some semi-bias here as well. My middle name is Andrew, but 
I also don't like being called by my middle name because typically that means I'm in trouble or I did something wrong. Uh, but nonetheless, I've become fond of our character for today. And there's a couple things that I didn't know about him until investigating him a little bit more. Number one, uh, his name in of itself indicates something to us as that he was a fisherman from the Galilee region. But his name is not Aramaic and it's not Hebrew. His name is simply a Greek name that would have been interesting to a Galilean region because there was a lot of trade perhaps in that area and it demonstrates a very Hellenized population. But what that also tells us is that this idea that's circulating in skepticism and in atheism against the New Testament Gospels, that these individuals were only able to speak Aramaic and that they were uneducated and there's no way they produced anything in the Greek world. Well, again, we've demonstrated, and I've done multiple, multiple episodes covering the Gospels, their authenticity, their eyewitness reports, etc. And once more, we find that that is an inaccurate statement. The idea of the uneducated side of it may be semi-accurate, but the idea that they were only bound to one single language is not realistic. Many of them would have known Greek, <clears throat> known Greek, and their names are actually accomplished in the Greek world. Also, we see that he, Andrew, being a companion of these others as fishermen, not only his brother, but also with James and John. They seem to be companions. In fact, we see in John 1 that John the Apostle himself, who's not naming himself, is with Andrew, with John the Baptist. So they obviously had a close relation to them. And we see them calling each other over to help catch all the fish that were miraculously caught in the Gospels. So obviously they were a very big part of fishing. James and John may have been a part of a wealthier version of fishing, uh, given their uh, father had servants, Zebedee. But Andrew would have been good companions and they would have been a part of good trade and they would have had the ability to correspond with a lot of people, especially in the business realm. But they were, they were fishermen, to say the least. And when we find John uh, introduce Andrew to us, he is kind of a quiet guy. He's not like his brother. He's not as outspoken, although he gets excited and he was very much involved in getting Peter to Jesus. His speaking parts are very few. Now, we know that Peter had a wife, and Paul talks about Peter having a wife. Peter himself had a mother-in-law uh, who is healed by Jesus. So Peter had a wife. We don't see anything about Andrew in a marriage. Perhaps he was, but there's no indication of it. But Mark chapter 1, verse 29 actually indicates to us that Peter and Andrew were perhaps living in the same house. So Andrew may have been a part of the life of Peter and his wife, <clears throat> or he lived in a connected community type of situation. We don't know. Uh, but if you were to turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 29, you begin to see the house is mentioned. It says, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So the house was Andrew and Simon, being Peter's home. So they apparently actually shared a house, uh, perhaps for financial reasons, we don't know. But that is the only indicator that we have, that they actually did live together. And we know that Peter was married, but we don't know anything about Andrew. Now, continuing into his life, uh, they became what was called the fishers of men, as they were called in Mark's gospel. And then we see this also described in the synoptics as well. Now, we don't see him show up that much in Scripture. In fact, I would say that John's Gospel gives him most of the speaking parts. And we talked about that. And you go back to the archives and look at the making of John's Gospel. I mentioned that we have historical statements that Andrew was with John 
And the Lord actually revealed to Andrew that the gospel of John should be written the way that it was. And that he, John, should dictate to a scribe the things that they, the collective group, had saw. So it would make sense to me that Andrew has speaking parts in John's gospel, but not like his brother who was behind the gospel of Mark, which others were being uh, corresponding with, like Luke and Matthew. But Andrew is really in some important moments in John's gospel, even when he's not having this big speaking part. We do see him there. It was Andrew that told Jesus about the boy who had the loaves and the fishes when we see in John 6. One of the amazing things about Jesus's miracles, especially the one, I think when we talk about the feeding of the crowd, that is one of the most important, where he takes a, a little boy's little lunch that was packed to uh, really just for him. Somehow we learn that John points to Andrew as being observant. So once again, Andrew and John are very much alike. Peter is not much of an observer as much as he is a talker. And, and we see this in siblings all the time. I mean, my brother and I are very different. I mean, I'm more uh, of the talker. My brother is more of the absorber and listener. I can see that being the case in this household as well. But we do see Andrew, who's called Simon Peter's brother constantly, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves, two small fish, but what are these amongst so many a people? <laughs> and so what we begin to see is Andrew <clears throat> is kind of a calculated guy. He, he goes, all right, now, Jesus, we do have this little kid over here. Uh, he does have a lunch, but he's the only one that packed a lunch. Nobody else packed lunch. Now, we don't have the resources to feed these people. What in the world is this little lunch going to do amongst so many people? And that's when Jesus did an amazing thing. He took that lunch and he fed the entire multitude. And we see others speaking here too. Philip has a speaking part and then Christ feeds the 5,000. Now within this, we learn a little bit about Andrew that he is closely attached to Jesus and he's observant of what Jesus does. But it is him who became intrigued by this miracle. And it is he that probably sourced the story there as well. If I, again, I happen to believe Andrew was behind the gospel of John along with John and maybe others that were still alive of the apostolic group. He was also part of the discussion with the Greeks in John chapter number 12. Remember the Greeks came to, they wanted to say, sirs, we would see Jesus. Well, guess who relayed the information? They came to Philip and Andrew. And Andrew and Philip were a part, again, of the discussion, which talked to Jesus about these Greeks. Now, I want to point this out. This is, I think, an instrumental point to understanding the ministry of Andrew, because we're going to see <clears throat> some of the places he went. Andrew did not become an apostle to the Jews later on in his life. Now, he may have been at the very beginning, but at the very point of his life and ministry that he is known for and seen in history as is not an apostle to the Jews, but to the Greeks. So this passage would have been instrumental in understanding the life of Andrew. And I think one of the things that needs to be observed, and I'll read it for us in verse 22 of chapter 12, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So these Greeks come. And one of the things that surprises me, Philip and Andrew are seemingly together on a regular basis in John's gospel and their talking parts are almost in the same scenes. So there must've been some sort of friendship with them. But I think that also indicates again, which apostles perhaps were behind in giving the source material to the penman of John's gospel with John being the main author. And again, go back and read the making of John or go back and listen to the making of John's gospel. I talk about how it was a group gospel and the evidence of that. And I think that other apostles were behind it. Makes sense. Andrew and Philip perhaps were behind that as well because their speaking parts 
seem to be in the same stories. But these Greeks come and say, sirs, we would see Jesus. Philip didn't know what to do. He turns over to Andrew and says, um, some Greek guys over here. I'm not sure what we should do about this. And apparently it was Andrew that said, well, let's go tell Jesus. And then Jesus said that the hour had not, that the hour has come for the Son of Man should be glorified. And then we find in this story, <clears throat> Jesus talks about those who lose their life that love it. And then he goes through this whole discourse of following him in life eternal and the father and the honoring of the life that gives to his cause. Then we find Jesus talk about judgment in the world and that the ruler of the world is going to be cast out of it. And that Jesus says when he is lifted up, he would draw all peoples, not just Jews, but Greeks to himself, signifying what kind of death he would die. Now, I wonder if that was etched into the mind of Andrew the rest of his life, because it is Andrew who ends up becoming one of the greatest, if you would, patron saints of multiple churches of the Greek world. His message, his ministry expanded. I wonder how often this statement of Jesus, because it's not in any of the other Gospels. And again, that kind of points to me the source behind the story. It was either Philip, Andrew, or both. But I wonder how often Andrew thought of what Jesus said. When I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself, not just Jews, because Greeks came wanting to see Jesus. And I wonder if that was the motivation for Andrew to go out and, and move with the gospel and begin many a churches in the regions we're going to talk about later. Specifically, the main one, the biggest one is Byzantium. or known in Constantinople, Istanbul. I mean, the name has changed. That area became prominently attached to Andrew, but there is more than that. And perhaps history and prophecy here meet. And perhaps Andrew is the source behind both realities. Andrew is obviously present at the breaking of the bread and the wine when Jesus instituted the Eucharist. He was one of the four disciples who came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives to ask about the signs of when Jesus would come at the end of the age in Mark 13, verse number three. He's an extraordinary character that has very few speaking parts, but the instrumental ramifications of him being on the scene really sets the tone for one, his personality, two, what he will almost do, and three, really the biggest thing for me for Andrew is his devotion to Jesus, even in the midst of skepticism. He, the idea of, uh, what, what, Lord, we got this, but I, I mean, what is it among so many? It's almost like he wanted to see Jesus do something with it. Why else would he tell him that a little boy brought some sort of lunch that his mom packed him to come listen to the preaching of Jesus? It's almost like he was daring Jesus, like do something. Like, what are we going to do? I mean, come on. I, I think that there is a skepticism in Andrew, but also a hopeful attitude that Jesus would accomplish something beyond his ability and thought. That's just my opinion. But I, I see that in Andrew, what little we have of him in the scripture. Now, we don't have much about him in scripture, but we do have a lot about him in history. Uh, Eusebius, in his writings... Uh, often would refer to other works to find information on Andrew, whether it be Origen or some of the other uh, writings, which we'll talk about. It's He states that Andrew preached in the northern parts of the Black Sea, uh, which would be particularly around Romania, Bulgaria, areas like that today. Now, that's going to become uh, pretty 
common knowledge to other records. We're going to continue to see the Black Sea region is almost the itemized list on a map where you can start going different directions around that sea to see where uh, really Andrew had spent his time. We also have a 12th century document known as the Chronicle of Nestor. And it states that he preached along the Black Sea uh, and particularly that would give us the area of Ukraine and Russia in modern day. W one of the major areas. And we're going to talk about why that's significant to him in a minute. And when we look at Hippolytus of Rome, he says that Andrew preached in Thrace. And in his presence in Byzantium, it is mentioned that in the apocryphal Acts of Andrew, which again, there is reference to that, but it is not seen uh, as a accurate, reliable document fully uh, because the province of where it came from is unknown. But according to its tradition, he found the churches of Constantinople or Byzantium around 38 A.D., and installing bishops around that time. Stachys is the bishop that he appointed, and according to their list of bishops, uh, being the ruling bishops there, he was a bishop of the area of Constantinople from 38 to 54 as its second bishop. So that would line us up here with Andrew. So if Andrew did go to Thrace, uh, and began this ministry all the way down and started these churches in Byzantium or Constantinople. And there he appointed its, its first bishop after him, being the second bishop of Constantinople. Constantinople. Stachys is the guy that he would have put there, and he lived from 38 to 54. So he apparently died before Andrew. But Andrew did appoint the first couple of bishops to that region. Now, we do not have other data about him other than what we have in this document, him being Stichys, the bishop. But Basil of Seleucia in the 5th century knew of the apostle Andrew's mission to Thrace and uh, other regions there, if you would, around the Black Sea, like Romania, Bulgaria, etc., so there's no doubt in my mind from the historical, even the apocryphal works, they're all pointing to the Black Sea where Andrew apparently had traveled into multiple places today like Ukraine and Russia, uh, Romania, uh, Bulgaria. That whole region seems to be something that was producing churches from the apostles. Now, we're going to talk about his martyrdom here. But before we get to his martyrdom, let's talk about all the churches today that still hold him as the patron saint of all of these churches, because he has quite a list. And I was actually quite impressed. Uh, he is mentioned particularly as the uh, patron saint of the Georgian church. And no, we're not talking about South of South Carolina. We're talking about the country. And, and by the way, we have multiple manuscripts. I should say we have various manuscripts in Georgian from those churches of that region, which apparently go back to Andrew himself. And obviously they look at him as their patron saint. And the tradition of this derives from uh, Byzantium sources that we have, particularly uh, the Nicetus of Paphlagonia, who died around the late 9th century, who stated that Andrew preached to uh, the Iberians, uh, Torians, Scythians, and to other regions that are around the cities near the Black Sea, both on the north and the south side. So he's telling us that Andrew is in that region originally, and that the story of Andrew's mission in the lands of Georgia uh, gave him the apostolic origin that they have. And there's others that defend this. Uh, there's people that talk about this. The first converts, there's a woman there named Nino uh, in the fourth century, a convert. There's stories about that. And the Georgian Orthodox Church 
actually dedicates to Andrew two major feast days in honor of him. Uh, May the 12th, December 13th, uh, the first uh, giving Andrew his arrival to their country. And the second uh, is also a public holiday celebrating his life and death. But when you look at the Georgian church, they state their origins go back to Andrew and they have their succession lines to it. But they also have their stories and their narratives, their historians who point to the fact that he was in their region. People came to Christ. And there's even stories about fourth century, a woman named Nino uh, who became a believer and the work of the Lord started there. Miracles started happening in their area. So they would place him there as their patron saint. Uh, we also see him mentioned as the one in Malta. Uh, also, Romania is another one, as we've been talking about, seems to be historically accurate to the things that we have going on there. So he seems to be in that region, again, around the Black Sea. Uh, even the East Slavic uh, people have him being a part of their patronage because of his movement and their stories there. Scotland, there's legends about that. Uh, the relics of Andrew were brought to uh, Constantinople, uh, a place where the modern Scottish town of St. Andrews stands, and that there's multiple sources that they're trying to conclude that Andrew is also a part of sending leaders as well as he himself being in their area and others bringing together. And then it's just a long list of, of items that it would be worth investigating when it comes to there. Because there's a lot going on when it comes to the Scotland area and the influence of Andrew. Now, Andrew's connection with Scotland uh, really took place with the Synod of Whitby when the Celtic Church felt that um, they were becoming belittled to really Peter's churches when, after all, Andrew is the first apostle. So there's a 1320 declaration of Arbroath, city of Scotland's conversion to Christianity by Andrew, first to be of an apostle. Again, they, they're going to highlight that. Numerous parish churches in the Church of Scotland and congregation of other Christian churches in Scotland are named after Andrew, which is true. I mean, if you actually even Google search that, you'd be surprised how many churches show up named after Andrew in the Scotland region. And, and let's be real, the Celtic churches did have people beforehand uh, that were already there. The Celtic churches ended up merging what ended up becoming the Church of England, the Anglican movement. A lot of Celtic Christians were a part of that move uh, that was authorized later on. We don't need to get into that, going back to Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, Augustine of Canterbury. Celtic churches were already there. Somebody had been there. Somebody had been a, a part of this. Um, we don't know for certain on this, but they are adamant that their origin and the connection to Scotland is from Andrew, whether or not he physically went there or sent people. We have to remember their, their source of travel was horseback and ship. I mean, they didn't have the ability to get on an airplane and fly and, or, or even get in a car or even go in ships that we have today that are faster or trains. The reality of the fact is these men did start a lot of movements, not, necessarily by themselves they sent people to do it we see this in the early stages of the new testament as well even in the book of acts uh, paul could be everywhere at one time he did send out ministry teams and leaders appointing them with authority to make moves like titus and crete and timothy and ephesus and and he would use them as his source material of understanding what the churches are dealing with and how he could correspond with those churches through the bishops he left there i mean this is not new so whether Andrew actually went to all these churches or he started them through his disciples, we don't know for certain, but there is no doubt the influence of Andrew's ministry impacted and go back to origins in each of these countries. Well, if that wasn't enough, we still have more. Um, he is the patron saint of the Dukes of Burgundy uh, in Spain. Uh, so when we look at this, Andrew is a patron of several locations that are there. San Andres, uh, San Andres Soses, and a bunch of lists. I mean, on and on. There's name after name after name after name after name in Spain where he is attributed to being their patron saint, which is interesting enough and in how things went with Spain later on in history. But there's no doubt 
uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Church, what a huge following uh, there of Christ, pointing their origin back to the work of Andrew. Because we got to think about, I mean, when you look at Paul, he never made it to many of these locations. Uh, his martyrdom came into play before that could ever happen. So when we talk about Paul the Apostle, these are areas he didn't go to. Peter didn't go to these areas. John stayed predominantly in the East. But it's interesting that John came into the area of Byzantium, and that was Asia Minor region, that whole area. He ended up predominantly focusing on the area of Ephesus and Smyrna and regions like that. But it seems like the base connection with John and Andrew was in that Byzantium region. Like almost like it was the headquarters. Now, it seems like Paul started most of that area. But apparently Andrew had already laid footwork in that region first. Uh, because what we were beginning to learn is that they're saying that he was there in 38 AD. Which is, which is very possible. And if that's the case, he was there before Paul. And Paul actually working around what Andrew had done and in some ways building on what Andrew had done. And that would seem to be the case. There's sometimes where Paul's speaking to a church and he doesn't say whether or not uh, he started it or didn't start it. And Acts doesn't really tell us entirely. But it seems like there are places where Paul did start and there's places where maybe he didn't. Could it be that Andrew had already started a work before Paul? Absolutely. It's very possible. We don't know for sure. But it seems like later in history, Andrew and John uh, were still connected, including producing the Gospel of John. And perhaps they needed a gospel that would continue into regions that were not touched by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that could be these areas we just talked about like Romania and the Ukraine region and Russia uh, and Bulgaria, all these areas that we've already gone over. The Celtics, these regions were unreached by Peter and Paul and John. But it appears that Andrew had made a quick move and a good move to that area and had moved with the gospel. And these saints, to this day, holds the historical documentation they have and some of their historians that Andrew was, after all, their first apostle who visited their people and brought the churches to their region of Jesus Christ. So that may be the case, 100%. So let's kind of end this on um, Andrew a little bit with talking about his life as well as his death in addition to the churches he helped start. Now, in the Apocryphal Acts of Andrew, which we've talked about, uh, Eusebius and Epiphanius mention it as well. In this, we see that um, he was an important figure who did a lot of miracles. Now, we don't have a way to confirm this. In fact, they're telling us that this writing, along with another one called the Gospel of Andrew, which we really don't have much on, they were rejected books meaning they were not seen by the churches as authentic and historical. So there are a lot of legends about him, for example. Uh, we also have another document called the Golden Legend, and it covers the life of Andrew. I mean, there's stories about Andrew resurrecting 40 men who had drowned. Um, it talks about his uh, miracles, his work in the churches, around the churches, uh, many, many people hearing his sermons coming to faith. There's exciting stories, both in the Acts of Andrew and apparently in writings like the Golden Legend. But we don't know them to be factual. In fact, Eusebius, Epiphanius, and others actually put the pause on it and said, eh, some of this stuff is, is kind of made up. Now, when we get into these sections there are things that seem to be consistent with his martyrdom, at least locationally, and at least from a tradition standpoint. It is believed that Andrew died on a cross, but not a cross in the shape of a T, but an X. And there's a whole lot of reason for that. In fact, if you uh, just look up the St. Andrew's cross, the first thing that's going to show up probably is a cross in the shape of an X or a, a painting of Andrew uh, holding a cross in the shape of an X. 
But there is in the legend, the golden legend, stories about Andrew's martyrdom, particularly in Achaia and kind of the mess that he ran into there. And I'm not going to read the whole story because it's massive and a lot of it seems kind of far-fetched. But there is perhaps some things that would be intriguing to us. Um, Aegeus was a leader there and he did not like Andrew. It's very obvious in the story he did not. And that Andrew himself <clears throat> started many of these churches causing problems for him, this leader, and he wants to put Andrew to death. The people don't want it, but he does. And Aegeus uh, stated that 21 men should come and beat Andrew, binding his feet and hands to a cross to the end that his pain should endure longer, which it did. We're going to see in a minute. It says, and when he had led unto the cross, there ran much people shouting, an innocent man is condemned to shed his blood without a cause. The apostle, Andrew, however, begged them not to save him from his martyrdom. We, uh, we see a little bit of this in Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, Ignatius himself did not want to be freed of his martyrdom. He told the church at Rome, like, when I get there, don't, don't try to get me out of this. I want to die. Andrew, at this point of his life, probably being an older man, did not want to be released of his death. And we're going to see his reasoning in a minute, but he's ready to go. I mean, he's ready to die for Christ and die on a cross. Notice what it continues to say in the golden legend. And when he saw the cross, that being Andrew from afar, he saluted it and said, all hail cross which are dedicated in the body, which was dedicated to the body of Jesus Christ and were adorned with the members of him and of precious stones. Therefore, our Lord ascended on you and you were of earthly power. Now you are the love of heaven. You will receive me by my desire. I come to you surely and gladly so that you receive me gladly as a disciple of him that hung on you. Andrew, looking at the cross, clearly has a attachment, seeing that it was an earthly power that replicated criminal activity. You know, it wasn't a good thing. The cross was a bad thing, but but a emblem of suffering and shame and criminal activity became an emblem of hope and life and atonement and redemption and love. That's why Paul said, I boast and nothing more but the cross of Christ. So here, he's about to die. He looks at this cross, and he says this, cross sanctified by the body of Christ. Oh, good cross, long desired, always have I loved you and wished to embrace you. Welcome me and bring me to my master. So here's Andrew talking to the cross he's about to die on, apparently in the shape of an X. He says, it's been sanctified by Christ's body. Christ's body died in this method. You're a good cross and I've desired you. I've loved you and wanted to embrace this death because I get to die the way my master died. And, and in doing so, I've proved to be a faithful disciple to him till death, even to the death of a cross. And then he invites this cross, welcome me. Bring me to my master to the end that he may receive me by you. And in thus saying, he despoiled and clad him and gave his clothes unto the butchers. And they hung him on the cross like as to them was commanded, being from their leader. And there he lived two days. So he didn't die quickly. Jesus died rather quickly. He lived in agony and pain on the cross for two days, according to this, and preached to 20,000 men that were there. Over these two days, people came, stood next to him, and he never stopped sharing the gospel of Jesus. Then came thither Aegeus for to take him down off the cross. Why? Well, Prior to this, 
the people after hearing Andrew and many of them actually being converted said this holy man should not be suffering like this. So peer pressure hits in. He's about to take him down. And Andrew saw he was going to do this. He says, wherefore are you coming to me, Agus? If it be for penance, you'll have it. And if it be to take me down, know for certain that you will not take me off alive. For I see now my Lord and King that abides for me. Therewith, they would have unbound him and they may in no wise touch him for their arms had no power. And, and, and Andrew saw that the world would have taken him down off the cross. He made this statement hanging on the cross. So Andrew ends up saying, look, don't take me down. I've come this far. Like, do not take me down. Let me die. And he would see that the crowd was ready to get him off the cross. And he refused. He refused to do it. Command my body under the earth so that it may behoove no more to wake, but let it be stretched freely to you, which are a fountain of joy, never failingness. And so Andrew there asking for his body to be taken back into the ground. When he had said this, there came from heaven the right great shining light which surrounded him for a space of a half an hour and such wise no man might see him. And when this light departed, he yielded and rendered his spirit. And Maximilla, the wife of Aegeus, took away the body of the apostle, buried it honorably, and uh, that would be the wife of his killer. And it says, and this might well happen of old time, for the body of him was transported to Constantinople. Now, <clears throat> I want to end on that, his body there, because they actually believe that the body of Andrew or portions of his body are still uh, kept by the churches today. Now, in this story, he is crucified. He is crucified and lives two days on the cross, still bringing people to Jesus in his death, refuses to be taken off and left there an old man suffering. He wanted to die, gave up this spirit, if you would, and the wife of his killer ended up taking a lot of parallels there, obviously, to Jesus. I mean, you have Pilate and you have Pilate's wife having dreams about Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of parallels there. Some would say there's mythological parallels too. Fine, whatever. But when you're talking about the body of Andrew, she apparently had honorably buried it and it was taken to Constantinople. And I want to read some sections here that go into his body because there's a lot of legend about this. And I, and I find it intriguing uh, as to the information that we have on it. So I'm going to pull this up. The relics uh, or the body alleged to be those of Andrew are kept in Basilica of the St. Andrew and Patras, Greece, in the Amalfi Cathedral. The Amalfi and the Sarzanin Cathedral. Now, there's multiple parts of his body that are considered still to be alive of the relics, and I want to get in to some of these, and I, and I want to go over it because I find this interesting. Maybe you will as well. Andrew's remains were preserved in Patros. According to one legend, Rugulus, a monk of Patros, was advised in a dream to hide some of the bones. Shortly after, most of the relics were transferred from Patros to Constantinople by order of the Roman emperor Constantius II around 357 and deposited in the Church of the Holy Apostles. Regulus was said to have had a second dream in which an angel advised him to take the hidden relics to the ends of the earth for protection. Wherever he was shipwrecked, he was to build a shrine for them. St. Rule set sail, or Regulus set sail, taking with him the kneecap, an upper arm bone, three fingers, and a tooth. He sailed west toward the edge of the known world and was shipwrecked on the coast of Fife, Scotland. Okay, now that's why I brought this up. Uh, the Scotland churches do believe they're significant to their origins as well as to their, at one point, having the body of Andrew there. But in, in all of that, the relics were probably brought to Britain in 597 as a part of the Augustan mission, and then in 732 to Fife by Bishop Aka of Hexham, a well-known collector of religious relics. The skull of St. Andrew, which has been uh, taken to Constantinople, was returned by Patras 
uh, by Emperor Basil I, who ruled from 867 to 886. In 1208, following the sack of Constantinople, the relics of St. Andrew and St. Peter, which remained in the imperial city, were taken to Amalfi, Italy, by Cardinal Peter Capua and the native of the Amalfi. A cathedral was built dedicated to St. Andrew, as in, in the town of itself, to house the tomb uh, in its crypt where it has maintained the most of the relics of the apostle, including the occipital bone remain. Thomas Pelagius, one of the youngest surviving sons of the Byzantium Emperor Manuel II, Thomas ruled the province of Moria, a medieval name of a region in that, in that, that whole location. So basically in 1461, when the Ottomans crossed the Strait of Corinth, he fled to Patros for exile in Italy, bringing with him what was supposedly the skull of St. Andrew and gave it to the head of Pope Pius II, who had enshrined in one of the four central piers of St. Peter of Basilica in the Vatican and then there in Italy. And then in 1964, in September of 1964, Pope Paul VI as a gesture of goodwill toward the Greek Orthodox Church, ordered that one relic of St. Andrew held in the Vatican City be returned to Patros, where it was originally at. Cardinal Augustin Bay, or Beau, head of the Vatican's Secretariat of the Promoting of the Christian Unity, led a delegation that presented the skull of the Bishop of Constantinople of Patros on 24th of September, 1964. The cross of St. Andrew that was taken from Greece during the Crusades of the Duke of Burgundy, it was kept in the church of St. Victor until it returned to Patras on January 19, 1980. The cross of the apostle was presented to the Bishop of Patras Nicodemus by the Catholic delegation led by Cardinal Roger Ectigari. And all the relics, which consist of small finger and skull, part of the top of the cranium of St. Andrew, and the cross on which he was allegedly martyred, have been kept in the Church of St. Andrew at Patras and Special Shrine and revered in a special ceremony every November 30th, his feast day. Which, again, that's when they hold it. Others hold it in May and December. So when we look at the body, uh, allegedly, the body or portions of the body of Andrew still remain today. And by the way, the Catholic Church believes they have the relics of Peter as well. Uh, the body of St. Peter, they've done investigative work on that. Many of the Catholics believe that truly is Peter. And apparently Peter and Andrew's bones being transported back and forth at the point uh, were buried together uh, and honored together. So the brothers were brought back together thousands of years after their death. You ask, do I believe that these are the bodies of Andrew and Peter? I can't say. Um. Do I think it's important? Yes and no. It's important because these were real men who, re who lived real lives, died real martyrdoms. And they help us with history. They help us with location. Some of the places that the churches had the body of Andrew actually help us why they saw the body of Andrew important. It really does help us do some origin work. So yeah, I, I, I think they're important. I don't think we should be doing what a lot of these churches do, praying to relics. I mean, they're dead, for goodness sakes. Um, Andrew on the cross asked that his body be taken back down to the earth. Um, a dead skull isn't going to help you. I, it's just It's not going to bring you special powers. And I know there's stories of guys, even researchers, archaeologists, who've gone and put their hand on these tombs, have visibly been there and seen... Uh, really interesting things happen as a result. Yeah, maybe. Okay, maybe. I'm not here to sit there and say this happened, that happened, this didn't happen, that didn't happen. That's not my job. Um, I have no way to validate these bones with DNA or connectivity or age. Traditionally, they seem to be the bones of Peter and Andrew. And now we'll get to Peter later. Seems like they have very, very important uh, connections. And the churches were protecting these even when the Ottomans attacked and others where the cities were being ransacked. They, they left them and taking what they seem to be the most important things to their city. And that would be their founder of their Christian faith in Jesus in those regions by the Apostle Andrew. 
and taking a skull or taking fingers or, you know, the asypolis, whatever, whatever they had to take, they ran off with. And it seems like the Catholic church to show kindness not long ago gave some of those relics back uh, to the Greek Orthodox church because he's the patron saint of most of those churches, not Peter and not the Roman church. So it's possible. It's very possible that these are the bones so in summary, kind of looking at all this, Andrew being the first disciple of Jesus, uh, there is uh, no doubt about that from John's gospel. He is the first disciple along with John himself. And in his first ability to present Jesus and Peter together, we see an amazing thing from the Protocletos, the first called. He brings Peter and calls Peter and says, you got to meet this. We've seen the Messiah. He's here. Peter being instrumental to the New Testament, to the work of Jesus, to the faith itself. Andrew initiated a lot of this. He's an important character. He lived a life moving quickly with the gospel, whether by his own feet or sending the feet of others, bringing the good tidings and good news to these countries. And he is a patron saint of many, many countries, more than Peter and more than John and others. And with Andrew's work in these regions from Constantinople all the way to the Black Sea and the areas around it, he seems to have played an important role up to his martyrdom where he was crucified on an X. And then his body was taken uh, to these areas and transported in pieces, unfortunately, uh, where they are still believed to be today. And this is the work of what the apostles were going to do. I mean, many of them died for what they believed and taught, but that did not stop their work. And today, many Christians in these areas are beneficiaries of the dedication and commitment of Andrew to the work of Jesus that he believed and saw and witnessed the life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And he was such a, a go-getter to accomplish that much in such a small lifetime, especially ending in martyrdom. And to this day, these churches in Ukraine and Russia and Bulgaria and Romania and the Greek Orthodox Church in its regions, <clears throat> in its breakdown, because it's broke down in different sections, are beneficiaries of the work of Andrew. So this is the life, ministry, and death of the Apostle Andrew. And uh, hopefully you learned something. I know I did. And reading some of this and looking at over the data. And we're going to continue this. We're going to go through every one of the apostles. And we're going to continue this series that you voted on and wanted. And make sure, again, that you actually bring these uh, different things into um, your social medias and sharing them. Make sure that you are um, putting them out, promoting them. And, and again, I'm excited about it. I'm glad you voted for it. I'm for it myself. Hopefully you'll be able to um, find these and download them and again, send them to others. And again, we are always appreciative of those that do continually support us. Uh, some of you support us financially on explorechristianity.net. You send monthly, uh, just even small amounts. It really helps our cause. Thanks again. Thanks again, always for tuning in. Grace and peace to you.